Welcome to Decision Space, the only podcast that takes place right here in the space between the turns in your favorite games. I'm Brendan. And I'm Jake. And we are so excited to be here with you this week again. Though we've been waylaid, we've crashed onto Planet Arnak. If you're a pre-planner, you know that we were headed for the Crucible. Uh, we've moved that, and that means Keyforge. That's the planet, the, the locus of planets where Keyforge takes place. That's going to happen next week. But we, uh, Jake and I, we were, we were just you know flying along in our interdecisional spaceship, and here we found ourselves crash landed onto Arnak. So we, we had to do some exploring and, and break down this game space. How are you doing this week, Jake? I am doing great. Yeah, we, you know, heard of the legend that there might be some valuable artifacts here. I thought, why not make a pit stop and, and see what we can unearth? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a part of the galaxy that's pretty active lately. So the radio signals were, were going, going off the wire. Uh, I'm glad to hear you're doing well. And yeah, that no one was injured in the crash. But Let's get into the uh, the ratings and slogans. That's that's not delay our our expedition here of Arnak. So, do you want to go first? Sure. Lost Ruins of Arnak is the blockbuster summer movie equivalent in board games. I feel like this is a game that is just overflowing with fun and adventure and excitement almost at every turn. Um, you know, it cynically is not a game I expected to enjoy as much as I did. You know, we wanted to cover this game in part because of, you know, how, how active the forum is. It's on the hotness. Maybe we can get a few listeners along the way. And I was just not expecting to, you know, fall in love with this game. I think it's fantastic. Uh, I think I'm going to give it an 8.3 out of 10. Really a great game. That's awesome. And I really love this idea of Arnak being a blockbuster board game. I think as we get into the podcast, we'll delve more into what that is. And I'm going to read my synopsis. I wrote one this week, but really quickly, I want to respond to what you're saying, which is that I also, so I mentioned this game to you a couple of times, Jake. I was like, what about Arnak? Um, and every time, Jake, I think you were sort of like, oh, not another deck builder. Um, and I was sort of like, I don't even know what it is. It just looks cool. But I don't really love the theme. I, I'm not so, I've never seen Indiana Jones. I'm not like, big on adventuring theme, but I will say that the more we've played it, the more I enjoy the theme. But no spoilers, here's my synopsis. The Lost Ruins of Arnak samples key elements from some of the decades, last decade's best innovations in board games. By blending deck building and worker placement mechanisms, Arnak manages to shed turbulent aspects of both and harmoniously creates an iterative but wonderful song all its own. Nine out of ten. I'm excited about it. I, I, I've enjoyed this wow. game so much. I think this game is one of the most, the best developed games I've ever played also. Like the, de the design is really good, but the development and the way that all of the pieces mechanically fit together is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> so it's, yeah, a big hit for us. So definitely, you know, check it out. Um, and, you know, let's, should we get straight into some of the uh, decisions here? We should. Well, first, if, if Arnak is new to you, we have a quick game breakdown for you to help you sort of get settled in within Arnak and sort of have you understand how the game flows generally. So we'll, we'll cut to that. Um, and also, I know that there's some percentage of people here who came hoping that we wouldn't be on the Arnak hype train. I'm sorry to let you down. It sounds like Jake and I both really enjoy the game and the decisions it offers. So if you are that group of people, stand by and see see why we think this game is so good.
The Lost Ruins of Arnak is a deck-building worker placement game in which players take on the role of adventurers, exploring the island of Arnak. A game of Arnak takes place over five rounds, and at the start of each round, players will draw five cards from their deck, which at the beginning of the game consists of two compass cards, two gold cards, and two fear cards, which are functionally the weakest cards in the game and slow the player's progress. Cards in Arnak are multifunctional, each having a core action and one or more travel icons. Players will choose between utilizing a card's core action or its travel icons while playing out their turn, and each card a player adds to their deck throughout the course of the game also provides victory points for game and scoring. These travel icons are used to deploy the players to archaeologists, their workers, in the worker placement module of Arnak, which they'll deploy to different work sites, and if a player is the first player to explore a dig site, they'll pay a cost in compasses, but be rewarded with an idol and the opportunity to overcome a guardian of that site for additional reward. In addition to the two types of currency in each player's starting deck, gold and compasses, there's three other types of resources in the game. Tablets, arrowheads, and jewels, which players will collect and spend to defeat guardians, or in pursuit of moving up a temple track in search of Arnak's lost temple. Functionally, gaining them victory points and additional resources each time they reach a new level of the temple track throughout the course of the game. Players will also utilize the game's two types of currency to equip their expeditions with useful items and powerful artifacts that improve the overall quality of their decks and lend the game a driving sense of momentum. The player with the most points at the end of Arnak's five rounds is declared the victor. In exploring the Lost Ruins of Arnak, one thing that I learned that I thought was really interesting, on the box it says that it's a game designed by Lewin and Min. Um, and I learned that Lewin and Min, I hope I'm pronouncing those names right, if not I apologize, are Michael Lewin Stach and Michaela Min Strachova. Uh, and these, this is a husband and wife designer duo who co-designed uh, Lost Ruins of Arnak, and they also work at Czech Games Edition, CGE, uh, so they're the publisher of Codenames, Galaxy Trucker, Zolkin, Through the Ages, um, and Lost Ruins of Arnak was published in 2020. It plays one to four players, and it plays in about an hour or two, or maybe two and a half or three. I haven't played the game physically at a table yet. I've mostly been playing on the board game arena implementation, and I will say a sing a two-player game you can run through in about an hour and then i I mean we played a three-player game online and over our lunch break in about 45 minutes it's hard i've also haven't played at the table but it's hard for me to believe this game could run three hours to any anybody but like the you know slowest groups sure (laughs) like four players learning the game for the first time yeah yeah that still feels long to me yeah that's i think that that's definitely true so I guess before we we get into it, we have a really fun uh, a fun way we're going to explore Arnak this week. But before we get there, do you want to take a stab at characterizing the decision space as we generally do to to lead off our discussion, Jake? You're making a face at me. I feel like that you might not want to be the one to take a stab at it. No, no, no. Let me just. Uh, I don't know why this question caught me off guard. That's what we do here. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the decision space is uh waxing decision space probably to the largest extent of any games that we've covered yet on this podcast and i say that because like your first round out of five in this game is so fast 
yeah. you're very limited in what you can do. And then towards the end of the game, like the turns get, you know, exponentially longer and more complex. By the time you get to the last round of the game, you know, you may be taking, you know, I don't know, like 15 or more like individual actions in that turn, where in the first round of the game, you're probably only taking like two to three max. So you really see that decision space balloon and it kind of creates this like really interesting and fun pacing of the game where you'll be three rounds through the game and checking your watch because it's only been 10 minutes you're like we're almost done with this and then like each next you know the next two rounds both take twice as long as everything that's come before them and i think that's certainly a hallmark of a a waxing game to to the highest degree yeah, it's so interesting. Your deck literally gets bigger. So there's lots of like physically waxing elements. The worker placement sp- spots on the board as you explore in Arnak, there there just are literally more spaces. So you have more decisions that you're able to make as more people explore them and reveal those locations. Um, each round, some of them will get filled up, but overall it's growing. And then I feel like there's the static element of the temple that at first made me feel like, oh, this maybe... At- I don't know. I wondered how that would factor into it. But interestingly, I think in general, we've talked about how some games, especially deck building games, and Arnak is kind, it is a deck building game, but it's sort of a, a an innovative deck building game, I would say. And I'm really excited to delve into why I feel like it doesn't match some of the other deck builders that I've played and how it's sort of taken spiritual elements of deck building and then made something that feels sort of unique. To this experience for me um but overall it really waxes and they're static elements but they don't really impact the decision space too much no it, it definitely doesn't feel like a deck building game to me and i've seen some people like leverage that as like criticism of the game like if you really love deck builders then you know this might not do it for you uh if you're coming to just looking for that deck builder experience you know but for me it's like let like the less deck building the better like like great <laughs> sign me up <laughs> i think it's also like so i want to keep going back to your metaphor of uh, a summer blockbuster i feel like if if marvel made a movie and they put a heist in it everyone would say would say like oh this is a that's it's a heist marvel movie and i it's not it, but it, it wouldn't feel that way because they couldn't make it a full heist movie because all Marvel movies have to be superhero movies. And I think with Arnak, like, yes, it's a deck builder, but there's so much more going on that if you sell it that way, you're going to mix max mismatch people's expectations. So it's interesting because I, I just don't feel like it is. And also really quickly, the pacing, I feel like the exposition here is like so slim. And then the climax is so large, like you were saying, Jake, and the way that the turn order plays out and just how the rounds go towards the end of the game, that that to me feels very blockbustery. Like, okay, we don't really care about the our exposition. We're just going to like, we'll do it really quickly. And it's important. You need to watch it. But then like, we're going to spend a ton of time in the climax and it's going to be so exciting. And you're going to get to do so many different things and it's going to be bombastic and wonderful. And I think that bombast is really yeah. what partially makes it feel like that. It's also like maybe really a little bit the there's a, a little bit of randomness in the game. You'll, you'll reveal a worker placement tile um, and you don't know what type of guardian you're going to face. It, it feels swashbuckling in that way that other maybe yeah. sort of traditional Euro style games don't because of the excitement. Right. Yeah. Not only do you not know what monster you need to fight and you know what you have to pay that, but you also don't know what reward you're going to get gonna from get. going to the worker placement tile. Yeah. It's totally <laughs> blind, uh, which is 
You know, I feel like something that would rub me wrong in a different game, but here it just adds the excitement of it. And I think, you know, the, to kind of put a pin on that blockbuster metaphor, maybe we'll return to it more, is that like, it's going to make it a fun experience your first time through. Uh, I think that's something that we've already talked about how yeah. important that is in game design. But like the first time through this game and you're just, you know, you're getting powerful effects into your deck. You know, all the cards you're getting in this game are, are exciting and powerful to play. Uh, you know, you're seeing new monsters, seeing powerful new action placement spots. You know, everything you're doing just feels really fun. Um, you know, and, you know, it's like going back is going back to that metaphor, right? You're going to a movie. It's a great time the first time through. But some of these blockbusters, you know, when you dig deeper a little bit, you know, you're like, that was so fun. And you're like, and, you know, it, it's also just a great movie. And I feel like that's kind of what you're what I've kind of realized about this. Like my first play, I'm like, this is fantastic. What a great experience. I don't think there's that much there. And then, you know, the more we've played it with folks in our Discord, the more we've talked about it, um, the more I've just been like, wow, this really is there's more than than meets the eye. And what meets the eye is like a fantastic, fun experience from the jump. Yeah, the game operates in a lot of different levels. And I think that's partially what's what's making so many different people attracted to the game and why it's really having a moment is it appeals to lots of different types of game playing fans. Uh, fans of like of worker placement games and more Euro style games, I think are attracted to it. And then fans of games that are more sort of loosey goosey and fun <laughs> and like dynamic and exciting are, are drawn to it too. And I think I sort of had a similar experience, Jake, I guess, as we're talking through our, our experiences with the game where I we played it the first time and I was like, this is cool. I like it. And then I played it again. I was like, oh, I don't really know. Like, maybe this isn't quite there. And then by like, but I kept playing and by play like five or six, I was like, oh, this is really good. I just don't understand what I'm doing wrong and how I can be even better at this game. And then by play 10, I was like, okay, I get it. I understand the meta. I understand what directions to go in. And I think partially why the game works that way is there's two types of currency and then three resources in the game um, that really you're using to interact with all of the game systems. So your deck is made up of the two types of currency cards. Uh, you have coins and you have compasses. The, the compass currency uh, has to do with travel and with purchasing artifacts. And the coin currency has to do with a little bit with travel and with purchasing action. So like your core deck building, really, not your late game deck building. And I think that one thing that the game does really well with these goods and the currency and stuff is you don't have to understand the relationship between all of them or like the nuances and how different things are costed to have a signpost that you can say like, okay, on this turn, I'm just trying to get those three things and then I'll move my my token up and I'll be fine. And like generally you will be. You'll, you won't maximize your game because it's a game about planning, but you can have a fun first experience. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's pretty crazy. You played this 10 times. I have played <laughs> this a more bunch than... of plays. I don't know what's been going on, Jake, because we had a similar, I had a similar experience with um, star realms and these last couple of games that we've done, I feel like have not been good for my sleep schedule. I, for the first time in all of decision space, I have started playing Arnak on my cell phone or going on board game arena on my cell phone so I could play Arnak mm -hmm. when I woke up in the morning or when I was going to bed. I would just, oh, I'll just play one game. I'll play one game. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think I've I've clocked in at around 25, 30 games. I would have to check, but I've played a lot of Arnak. Holy crap, that's <laughs> insane. 
All right, that's good context. That's good context for this conversation because I think I've finished like four games and I have like four more games that I'm in right now playing asynchronously at like various levels of completedness. So we are coming at it again from a little bit of different perspective, just in terms of how deep we've had the opportunity to dive into the game. Totally. Which I think is really exciting and will lead us on a really good adventure through Arnak. So this is the way we're going to explore the episode. There's five different things that Jake and I can do in our exploration of Arnak that each relate to five different systems or areas of systems within the game. So I'm going to invite Jake to pick a category, pick a verb, pick an action. Uh, think of these maybe as worker placement spots. And then we're going to dive into that aspect of the conversation. So today, Today in our exploration of Arnak, we're not going to tell you what these correspond to until they get revealed also, just like the workers' placement spots in Arnak. Um, but Jake and I are going to gear up, we're going to have lunch, we're going to dig at a site, we're going to explore the wilderness, and we're going to research our discoveries. So Jake, in our exploration of Arnak in this Choose Your Own Adventure podcast, where what do you want to do first? Do you want to gear up? Do you want to have lunch? Dig in a site? This is so fun. Explore the wilderness or research our discoveries. I, I'm glad. I, I want to pick the one that I think is like, I love I love this. I love that you've created this little uh, choose your own adventure here. Well done. And I want to dive right in. I packed my lunch. It's already, I'm already getting hungry. I want to dive right in, have lunch first. And, and then, uh, you know, and then we'll work off those calories later. <laughs> I love it. This is a, an adventure after my own heart. We're, we're sort of like already, no, let's just have the snack now. Then we'll get into that, into the work. Um, so having lunch is deck building. So we're going we're gonna to kick off our discussion with all of the sort of deck building aspects of Arnak and really break it apart. So I mentioned this earlier, Jake, but I feel like when you say deck building, a lot of people think of the sort of like wave one deck building experience as laid out by Dominion, and I think picked up by games like maybe Clank or Star Realms that sort of say, uh, what does that deck look like? And how can, what does an average turn look like? And how does that sort of extrapolate from there? It sort of emphasizes the importance of, of scrapping and sort of, um, I think also the tension between making your deck inefficient versus making your deck, it's all about timing. Um, in some ways with those with those decks and also there a lot of them start with 10 card decks and arnak is actually a six card starting deck yeah yeah i think there are yeah i wanted to talk about this first since we already kind of brought it up in our beginning gushing about this game segment um and and i think that there are, there are quite a few different things that to me are the reason why arnak feels so unlike a deck builder it almost feels like something else like it almost feels like it's like an action building yes. game or something where you're like choosing the actions that you'll want to take later on in the game um which makes it feel to me much more strategic i think than a lot of uh deck building games because you really are like have this opportunity to, to choose a card and roughly like when you're going to get it um right because because uh you know that whenever you draft it or whenever you buy a card whether it's an artifact card or a item card it goes to the bottom of your deck 
unshuffled. So you know you're going to get roughly when you're going to get the opportunity, whether that'll be next turn or in two turns. And if you get it in you know, round one, you also know like this is something you're going to have access to multiple times throughout the game versus you know maybe once or later in you know later in the game it might be something you're just buying for points alone um so i think that is that's something that i know other games do too i've played uh taverns of tiefenthal and that has this like mechanism where you're putting the cards on top of your deck um i I think uh shoot what's the one about like fighting space monsters the deck builder you know what I'm talking mm, about? About fighting space monsters. I It's slipping my mind right now. I'm sorry. Uh, We're going to leave a hey cliffhanger. We're the worst. <laughs> the worst. This, is the, this is the worst board game podcast I've ever listened to. <laughs> about fighting space monsters? Yeah, it's like a huge deck builder. People love it. Everyone at home is just like palm on forehead right now listening to us. Throwing you, the... you know what I'm talking about, though? No. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm Googling it. I wish I did. Okay, you Google it, and I'm going to make a point following up. So I feel like that's one of the most distinguishing characteristics that you outlined, Jake, just that they get added to the bottom of your pile. Um, and it allows you to sort of plan around and make clever combos. But I also think the fact that you don't shuffle your deck at the end of, uh, until the end of a round, you can't, dr- if you play a draw and your deck is empty, you just don't draw any cards. And that feels really different than sort of something like Dominion, where your your whole game plan is really about drawing and cycling through your deck as much as possible, you know? Yeah. The game is Eon's End. Oh, oh, oh. Okay, yeah, yeah. Now I know what you mean. Is that, it's Space Monsters? Okay. I thought it was Fantasy. No, it's like, well, I don't know. We're just going to okay, get ourselves okay, into okay. more trouble with this yeah, one. Yeah. Abort, abort. Yeah, okay, but back back to our topic. I totally agree, and I think a huge distinction, too, uh, has to do with the way the cards that you're adding to your deck are designed, in that I think in so many other deck-building games, you're picking a card that does one thing, Mm. and, and, and it's like the way you build your deck is like, it, the way you balance different like commodities in the game into your deck is what's important. So like in Star Realms, like you get cards that are like either like good at defense, or mm. they're good at giving you income, or they're good at giving you damage. Um, and and I think that's like very similar uh, to Dominion, right? You can get income cards, you can get cards that are worth points, you can get cards that like facilitate different strategies. Uh, yep. Same with Taverns of Tiefenthal and what you end up with in decks like that, in deck in decks like that, at least what it feels like to me, and maybe this is uh, part of the reason so many of these games rub me wrong, is like no matter what, at the end of the game, like your deck is bad because mm. you have things that, and and part of that too is that the your starting deck of basic cards is larger, uh, right? So like no matter what you do throughout the game, you're never gonna get to something that like you're really like super excited with, you know. Whereas this, everything that you're adding to your deck does everything, right? Like, not not always, but, like, in the sense that, like, it's going to be worth points to you. It's going to be advancing your strategy to get up the research track, you know, and it also is going to be providing you income in some way. Um, so I feel like your deck just feels so much more satisfying when you get to the end of the game in this than really I've experienced in any other deck builder. 
Yeah, definitely. I feel like the decision in Arnak to make everything have a play effect, to have a all the cards that you add to your deck give you victory points, and then they all have the travel effects. They're all no matter what, even cards that you would never use to travel, um, that probably shouldn't even have an icon up there because you would never use it. You still have it because I think they made the important design decision to sort of make everything work on that level, and it, it's so smart and it, it works so well. And like you're saying too, Jake, there's no the. I think scrapping is very plentiful in this game. That's something that surprised me when I first started playing. We've talked about it some in the Discord. Is It's pretty easy, even if you don't get an assistant that helps you scrap. Um, there's, there's lots of cards that you can get that help you scrap, like the axe or the army knife. And then you can just pick up scrapping up the board, and then some of the worker placement spots will allow you to scrap when you play into them. So you can pretty reliably thin out your deck. Uh, to a point where it can be really effective. And there's reasons to add fear cards later on in the game. But oftentimes when you find yourself doing that, you're doing it knowing that you'll never see them because they'll be on the bottom of the, like you just buy them into your draw pile and then you're never going to draw again. Um, so unlike Dominion where, yeah. oh, I need to buy my victory point cards and they're ending up in my deck and messing up my draw. Here in Arnax, a lot of the times when you would add fear, you're just doing it in a way where you're going to get rid of it immediately. or you're never going to see it and it will give you a negative point, but like it doesn't mess up your draws and it feels so good, but I very yeah, much. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, the fact, yeah. Just, I think what you said was kind of the word I was missing. It's like all the, every card in the game is multi-use. Yeah. Right. So it, that's, that's just fun. That's like, right. It makes it feel like you have so many more choices versus like in, in, in so many of these other games, obviously we're painting with a broad, brush i think clank is the same right like you play a card out of your hand and it's like a coin and that's mm-hmm. it and and like in this even like even the fear cards which are just worth negative points like they still allow you to travel, travel. and they're important for travel the boots matter uh um, right they have a lot of value you don't want them later in the game but i you scrapping them too early I mean, you always want better cards because they're always going to be better than boots. Yeah. But there is I think you should always scrap it. Boots. Yeah, you, you should, should always, always scrap, scrap it. Again. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, okay. okay. Well, really quickly, <laughs> I think I just want to sort of second and emphasize the sort of action building idea that you had, Jake, because I think it is really important that I, I don't think we fully explored that idea and I don't think we need to in this episode, but it is meaningfully different enough that if you don't like deck builders, don't avoid Arnak because you th- feel like it's you're just going to bounce off of it because it might feel really differently to you. And it's almost like you're programming your actions for the future with some randomness once you go through your deck completely. Right. And it does feel like, you know, just, just to make sure we're talking a little bit about the a- actual like decisions here, like yeah. it <laughs> does feel like you're able to create different strategies there are like cards that synergize very well Uh, i think we'll talk about like later on but there are kind of i see like three sort of main strategies ways to like approach this game and like you can definitely build a deck that facilitates the strategy you're going for so there's a lot of strategic thinking in what you want to buy and then also like a really satisfying tactical element of like and like when to buy right definitely because, and yeah when to buy is so huge in this game because buying costs action so like you said jake i think we'll get into a lot of that too and so much of deck building is purchasing decisions though that's at a different point in our adventure so 
dear listener, you'll have to hold up and wait and see if Jake can unearth the that part of the conversation. But I think we've we've consumed our lunch. Yeah, we we've gotten through uh, this first step in our adventure. So we have four remaining things to do in our time here in Arnak. Gear up, dig at a site, explore the wilderness, and research our discoveries. What are what are we doing next, Jake? Okay. Now, you know, we, our bellies are full. Uh, I, I want to seek out and, and see what's around us, but I think better safe than sorry. Let's go ahead and gear up before we set out and uh, and, and see, see what we can uh, kind of attach ourselves with it seems very wise i'm glad that you're not making us go without any gear into the wilderness of arnak so gearing up gearing up is card drafting the travel system and actions and artifacts uh or items and artifacts do you want to sort of kick off this part of the conversation jake because i think it's a continuation of the idea you were just talking about yeah yeah, so I think um, a huge element in this game that makes it so fun to me is is tempo. Mm-hmm. So when when you're actually choosing to purchase um, a card, or you're choosing to you know go to a worker placement spot, uh, you know that is a place where I think like the game feels the most interactive with the other people because in in, in all cases. Well, actually, not all cases, right? But if you take a card, there's only one of that in the deck. Each card is unique, so you can absolutely like scoop something out from under someone. Uh, and and also, depending on player count, sometimes you can go to some of the actions twice. Uh, but very frequently, getting to an action first is a significant barrier to entry uh, to getting that action, or it just means no one else can get it. So there there's a ton of tempo decisions about when to take the various actions so that you're able to do what you want. And what the decision feels like a lot is, like, I want to go to this place first. Like, you know, right, you can you can easily see the optimal plays, but often the optimal line of play is a sequence that could be very easily interrupted by somebody else. So when do you choose... Uh, to do something a little less optimal to secure an item that you really need or secure uh, uh, a bonus for you know being the first person to reach a certain level on the research track. Yeah, definitely. I think that there's a real sense of scarcity in terms of everything in the game. You only have two archaeologists. We're not talking about the worker placement, but so there's only one card of of each type, and you're really I think when I first played Arnak, I just sort of bumbled through the game and just was picking things that seemed like, oh, this seems pretty good. And they probably were. But one of the things that I think once you've played Arnak more and more, you start to appreciate how important the decision of when to buy what cards really matters. And I think I'm juxtaposing these right now because a lot of times when you're making the decision to buy a card, you're making the decision to do that before exploring at a site or before moving up the the research track. And you're making that decision because you feel it's really important for your strategy to have this card in your deck. And if you don't buy it, there's a chance before the turn gets back to you, someone else will buy it. And that could be devastating. There's a chance that maybe you, you only have one coin 
sitting at the table. No one maybe will know what cards are in your hand. Um, if it, or maybe you have played out most of your cards and they do know, and they know you're not going to really get another coin and they can afford to just spend their turn blocking you from buying the one cost coin card, like a, a trowel or a pickaxe or something two really good one cost cards, uh, and really block you from your strategy. So there's this nice parallelism in terms of worker placement blocking and deck building blocking that I think Arnak draws that comparison between and makes it a part of the game. And I think in terms of Arnak, one thing that's very important in terms of the card drafting is the first row of cards is can really impact the shape of the game. If they're all pretty expensive, that's going to create a really different feeling game of Arnak than if they all come out and they're one and two coin cost cards and everyone's adding them to their deck in the beginning and they're going to have this really powerful round two versus maybe a slower round two as you build up and then there's going to be this explosive round three. Um, so I, I completely agree in terms of the timing being so important about the cards here also. And then also, Jake, maybe it'd be good if we talked about the Moonstaff system, because that's another way in which sort of timing factors into things. And the Moonstaff system, I think, is very clever. So as Jake mentioned, there's two types of cards in yeah. the game. There's artifacts and items, which the items are sort of like the action cards that you're more reliably playing. The artifact cards are action cards too, but the first time when you buy them, you get an effect. And then if you want to use it again, you have to pay a tablet. So I find these are like one-shot actions for the most part. Some of them you want to add to your deck, the artifacts, versus the items, which really you're going to be using over and over, and they're like your bread and butter. Um, and the Moonstaff system is such that at the beginning of the game, there's one artifact slot, the sort of more late game cards, and four item cards, the more early game cards that you want to be the bread and butter of your deck. And it's, I think it... I don't know. It's very interesting how it sort of pushes you in certain directions, but there's times late game where you might really want a certain item. So that culling and getting smaller, depending on the cards that you've drafted and that sort of thing, can really affect your decisions. I think it's such a smart innovation, and I mean, maybe something similar has been done before, but it, it's the it's exactly like going back to the blockbuster thing. It's exactly the kind of thing in Arnak where you like see it the first time and you're like, oh, that's a clever hook. I yeah. like that. And then the more you play it, and you're like, wow, this really this system does so much for the game. Because in so many other deck builders, uh, you know, at the end of the game, you're like, oh, cool, I have income, but like, I need to be doing damage or doing something else, right? It would have been like, oh, yeah, I can buy this card to add it to my deck, but that's not going to help me at all. Like that happens in Star Realms all the time, right? Yeah. Um, where here, because of the way the moon staff works, like towards the end of the game, it is a different resource. You have to pay for them. Uh, so that also is something that creates really interesting, like tempo in the game, right? You want coins early on to buy items, which will be more plentifully available. And then towards the end, you want compasses, which allow you to buy artifacts, uh, which will be more plentiful at the end. Uh, so that also, you know, creates a sort of arc in the game. And it makes the deck building buying more satisfying in the late rounds. So it's like, you know, you see it and you're like, that's neat. And then you pull back the surface a little bit and you're like, wow, that's actually like really smart from a design perspective. That's, that's uh, you know, do, doing a bunch of work under the hood to make each turn feel satisfying and fun. 
Yeah, definitely. And I feel like another really smart, you talked a little bit earlier to Jake about the sort of different vectors that all exist on a card. So every card has victory points. Every card has travel icons, the sort of things that let you explore. They all have an action. And then they also, one thing that's maybe not as apparent is they all have a speed of an action. Um, so some cards mm. are instant effects. So there's cards like the gold pan that you play it and you instantly get two gold. Or there's other cards in the game where you play it, but that's, that counts as your main action in the game. And that goes back to Tempo, where Arnak is really a game about planning and about timing. And the one thing that as I've played the game more, I've, I've come to understand the power of those instant effect cards because they, they give you so much flexibility not having to spend a whole turn to take a main action. And some of the main action item cards can be really powerful and get you a lot, but it's the taking a whole turn to play a card at the start of a round to build up resources is a big cost because you're giving up a shot at a, at one of the worker placement spots early. Um, and I think that it's just so interesting or a card or, or a research track. Yeah. Yeah. yeah moving up and, right. and getting more There's resources. A, like to, yeah. It's There's always a cost no matter what you're doing. You're giving up an opportunity somewhere else. I think yep. that's kind of the, to drive that nail home. Totally. And I think the And if you're if you're playing an action card, sorry, if you're no, playing no. an action card, you're giving up all opportunities on all three vectors. Yes. So maybe now's the best time in terms of to, to make the point that Arnak is really a game with lots of opportunity all across the game to find an edge, but it invites the player to figure out what area of the game they're going to specialize in and in terms of the decisions that come along with the card drafting i think it's for me one of the most rewarding ways in which that happens because i think it's one of the most high agency ways in which you can do that um early game you're building out your deck and you know what actions are going to come later you have really high agency there might be a little bit of randomness but like you said jake because they go on the bottom of your deck you largely know what you're going to draw into not always um and then later on in the game the when you buy an artifact, the fact that those trigger and you get the effects immediately, that I think also contributes to the sort of action selection aspect of the deck building is that some of the cards you buy, you literally, you just do it. You don't have to wait. It's better than it going on the top of your deck. You just get it immediately. And those feel so powerful. And it, it gives you a lot of flexibility in your strategy if you've invested in the compasses to buy them. Totally. Yeah, I think... Um... One thing we were talking about a little bit on our Discord is it feels like uh, because of the design of the actions, artifacts, and then uh, the you know research board or whatever, the research track, like it always feels like you're executing a plan and strategizing for your next plan. You know, yeah. anytime you do anything, you're like, yes, I'm moving up the track to get this achievement, or like, yeah, you know, and that means like. That's giving me this reward, which is helping me to buy this thing over here. Or I'm buying this thing over here, and I get to do this action, which is helping set up my next move. And I think like the the way the artifacts are designed to give you that action right away. I mean, it's essentially half the cards in the game that yep. you'll be available to buy are giving you a, an action right away is a way that it takes that theme of executing and planning uh, and puts it into the actual, you know, card drafting element of the game, which is normally in in these games a purely sort of 
strategic right deal where it's you know it's something like i'm buying this to do later and here it's like no like you're buying this to do later but also do it right now and it's like yes like that feels great totally and that's the yeah that's the fun exciting moment that feels like a one of uh, like a summer blockbuster too and i think the the fact that the artifact cards allow have the sort of constraint that the when you want to play them out of your hand not just when you buy them they cost a tablet gives so much texture to the cards it's such a simple rule that just applies to a whole swath of cards and they could have sort of made the design decision to say like oh this card costs a compass to play and this card costs a arrowhead to play but they showed a ton of restraint and i think that it pays off in spades and it also gives them so much texture to play with the design of those cards because there's certain artifact cards that you net once you buy it you're really buying it as the action and you never want to play it for paying a tablet. It's just, that's a blow up. If that happens to you for certain cards, it feels so bad. Like I'm thinking of maybe the one where, yeah, there's always exceptions, I think like in most games, but like ones that give you fear cards, you probably only want to do those once because the cost of them is really about timing flexibility that you're getting a jewel and a fear card right now. You're probably doing that because you need the jewel immediately, but there's probably better sources of getting jewels in the game than playing that card over and over. But there's other cards like the War Club. This is an artifact that costs four compasses. And when you play it, you defeat a guardian. That one, you just give it to me in my deck in round two. It's going to feel so good. And I'm going to build my whole strategy around it. Um, and I think that, that it gives a lot of flexibility in the sort of types of strategies that you can go for, depending on what artifacts are out there early. Yeah, totally. I mean... Yeah, it's it's they're really well designed, and I think just the last thing I'll say about the artifacts, I think these are such a clever design to to everything you're saying, and also I think it the extra cost the second time it comes up through the deck enables them to be even more powerful, right? And yeah. feel like a blockbuster moment, like you know they're kind of one card combos at times, right? Because it could be like I'll use my assistant which we haven't really touched on how there's these assistants we will in a second. And then I'll play this card that lets me switch out my assistant for a different assistant. It comes refreshed and I'm going to like use that, you know, it's like a, a one card combo feels so great. Like you're doing a lot. Um, and you know, if, if you could do that every time through the deck at no cost, it might be too powerful, but having that small constraint on it enables them to really blow up some of these effects. Definitely. And preserves a really strong sense of momentum in the system because you don't have this stop and start sort of jerkiness of, okay, I'm going to buy a card. And then when I get it, it's going to be really powerful. It's just like, okay, I'm buying the card. I'm doing the thing that I get to do this thing off of it. And I think that's the sort of comboish nature that you're talking about, Jake, that just really carries the game forward and forces it forward once you get to this sort of third round on where players can plug in these artifacts and just run with it. Yeah. By the end of the game, it can really feel like you've got like uh, you're playing a game of magic all of a sudden, like all your cards are um, like, you, you know, you, you have no more of the cards that are just basic. Like you've scrapped them all. You've scrapped all your fear and all your cards are like draw two cards, gain a compass. And you're like, okay, I drew these two cards. This one lets me like reuse my researcher. which gives me two compass to buy an artifact. I'll use that. Now that lets me draw three cards. And like, and I have this, I can exile to take, to move my worker guy to a different place. And it's like, you can really create decks in a really short playtime yeah. that feel, you know, only five rounds, right? It's 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 a short amount of time, and yet at the end of the game, the deck you've created to me feels more satisfying than decks that I've been able to come up with in literally any other deck builder. Yeah, I definitely agree with that, and I think that partially to, in terms of the the purchasing decisions, I feel like it 
I've been invited to make more interesting purchasing decisions because of the way in which you're juxtaposing these two different types of cards that do fundamentally different things and the, the timing within the system that it just creates these these really interesting decisions. There's also cards that are sort of one-shot exile cards, the items like the hot air balloon or the flask. This is a card that lets you just draw three cards or the treasure map that lets you, if you exile it from your deck, you get three compasses. So it enables these really interesting strategies that you don't always get to do. And you have to make the decision, one, is, is my deck good enough that buying a card like the flask is worth it. If I'm just going to be drawing coins and compass base cards and maybe a fear, no, that's not a good enough card. But if I'm timing it right, I'm making the decision to buy it. It's a good time in the game for me to give up all the other stuff I could be doing to put a turn of tempo towards buying this flask. And then it's going to set up this huge turn. Just the game invites the stars to align so reliably. And it, it feels so good when you make these clever decisions that then play off. Yeah, and it doesn't feel lucky when it happens yeah. either, like it can in Star Realms, where you're like, I've got all these different colored ships in my deck, oh cool, I drew three of the same color this turn, and now I'm going to win. Like, that feels great, it's awesome, the stars align like that, but it feels lucky, and when your opponent does it to you, you're like, you got lucky, you know, but in this, it, it feels, it's like, the game is constantly telling you, it's like, Brandon, you're so smart for doing this. Like, look at you. You're yeah. getting this bonus. Like, way to go, man. You're doing great. Keep it up. Like, that's kind of the the feeling. Totally. Wow, look at you. You put the stars in order. You just reached up right there and did it. Oh, yeah. you knew you were going to draw that this turn, didn't you, you clever <laughs> booger? <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And I don't even care. Just let me play again. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, I feel like we're pretty geared up, Jake. Do you now that, we, so. <laughs> now that we have our gear? Um, maybe we have a nice little donkey with us. Maybe we're in an automobile or a, we're on the steamship. Um, maybe we have a sea turtle that we're riding. These are all cards in Arnak. Um, where, what are we doing next? Are we digging out of sight? We've got are our we, dog. We've got our dog. Got with dog. Us. So cute. That card's adorable. That's my favorite card. Just, <laughs> just type, named like dog. <laughs> like, I love that. All right. So now that we're geared up, it is time to re... No, we we can't... I mean, the only thing that makes sense is to explore the wilderness. Okay, right? that, yeah, I mean, Let's how would find, we... Well, I want to dig. We've got our gear to dig, but I think we should at least find a good spot first. It's probably okay. not a good idea to start digging down here at base camp. That's. I think that that's, that's really true. Though, who knows what we, we could discover at base camp. But yeah, let's explore the wilderness. Let's get out. We'll, we'll take the axe and the machete and we'll, we'll start carving our way into the jungle. So, explore the wilderness. This was, I bet you could guess if you played Ardak what we're going to talk about. And that is the exploration and idol system. Um, so this is the system within the game. You start the game and there's sort of three tiers of worker placement spots in the game. Uh, you always have tier one available. That's basically where Jake and I ate lunch. These are your sort of like campsite actions. They're the most base level actions in the game and they're the least powerful. So you really are incentivized and pushed in the game to start exploring. So in tier two and tier three, they're at the start of the game. There are no revealed action spots. They're all hidden and randomized. And if a player is willing to spend compasses, they can go and reveal one of those at worker placement spots and they'll get the, the actions for them immediately. They'll have to fight a guardian. We'll talk about that in a minute. 
They'll also get an idol that they found that gives you tons of flexibility later in trading it in for resources or keeping it for VP. Um, and you also, I think even more importantly, in terms of the deci decision space of the game overall, have created a new worker placement spot in the game. So what this does really is it creates a dynamic amount of worker placement systems that we're not going to talk about yet because... I said that this is about just the exploration system and the idle system. So bait and switch, the guardians really play into this also. Um, and I think a lot of the momentum in the game has to do with how the guardians cost. They're sort of a checkpoint. If you can defeat them, you're going to get a benefit that you can use further on in the game. And you also get five victory points. So you're incentivized by the game to spend your compasses to explore. And then you definitely want to try to defeat a guardian if it's revealed. Um, and then future in the game now other people uh one can't explore that spot oh there's also a bonus for revealing a spot jake save me i'm stuck in the jungle i'm too deep yeah 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 oh well, i think what uh where what kind of comes in here is the game presents you with a lot of really satisfying trade-offs um when you're going to explore a space that costs three compasses so that's that's like the amount for a really good artifact that yeah. we talked about earlier so you know when you're when you're making these decisions you're really picking that over something else in the game uh right when you're paying resources to fight off a guardian that's really good you get a lot of points out of it and you get a benefit but those are resources that could also be spent moving you up the temple track right you could certainly play a strategy where you're just wait for other people to uncover stuff and, and go there. And that can be effective too. And, and just, you know, really commit to racing up the temple track as much as you can. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it just really comes down to that. Like, Oh, and then the other place trade-offs come in is to go somewhere. You have to pay travel icons yes. uh, from the top of, from the top of your cards. So going to a, a, a space all the way at the top of the board requires two of a specific travel icon, uh, whether it's a boats or cars. So, you know, unless you have some other way to get those, maybe from an assistant or a guardian you fought earlier, you know, that could be, you have to discard two cards to use to travel. So that's a huge trade-off to do that as opposed to, uh, you know, using those cards for their effect. So I think in, this is where those satisfying trade-offs which you know what is a trade-off but like uh, an important decision point each one an important decision point in the game and this is where the game presents those to you yeah definitely and i think one other thing that's really interesting about the design of arnak and the exploration system and the idol system is the first four uh, it, it's not as much a one-to-one -one. when you explore a tier two spot you get an idol no matter what and when you explore a tier three spot, which is pretty expensive, it's very, it's difficult to do. Um, six there's compasses. Six compasses. So you really have to build up for it, especially early game. You get two idols and these idols can be traded for all the different types of currency and resources in the game. And you can also trade them to draw cards. So they give you flexibility. But the guardians that you reveal, so you're traveling to these spots you're exploring, you're getting idols, but then the guardians all have a cost associated with them. And a lot of times you're going to use your idols to pay for defeating the guardian, not always. Um, but I think that 
with the way that the exploration system works, it's a it's an output randomness opportunity in the game because you choose to explore and you know a small benefit that you're getting. It's usually like you'll get a compass, you'll get a coin, you'll get a tablet, you can upgrade something or you can scrap something. Um, but then you flip over the the spot, you learn the resources that you get, and then you add a guardian and you see what you have to do. So the output randomness is not knowing what you're going to get when you go there. You do know you're going to get an idol and some small benefit. And then you know you're going to have to fight a guardian, but you don't know what you'll get. And Arnak is really smart in that they incentivize players to do this by making it some of the cost, most cost-effective victory points in the game. And then also not making it mandatory to defeat them. You can win a game of Arnak by exploring once or twice, not defeating guardians and focusing elsewhere. Or... If you have the flexibility in your system and the sort of deck that you've built, the assistant that you have to deal with that randomness, you get rewarded handsomely. And in addition to five victory points, you get some sort of other benefit, like a token to then travel elsewhere and upgrade. So it again plays into that momentum. But you can also play a game of Arnak Jake without exploring at all, really. You could just let other people reveal victory worker placement yeah. spots and then do that. And I've seen that work too. I did, I did, I did win a game with only claiming one idol the whole time that's awesome <laughs> uh which was uh that was that was very weird though that was like an early one of our plays though so i don't know if that could really be replicated again with anything but new players but like it is i think that at least shows that like you don't have to focus too heavily on this definitely and the game rewards you it gives you victory points for not having used your idols to so if you don't have idols you're going to get victory points for not filling these idol slots or if you get idols and you don't use them you'll get victory points for not using them so i think it's really careful to enable that strategy and even though it was a newer game i feel like that game taught me a lot about how flexible the system is and i think it's especially possible when you're not playing a two-player game because there's just going to be more spots available to slide into that are more flexible Right. If you're one of the players not exploring, but I think that's probably good on. Yeah. I, ex- well, let me just say one more thing. I think like the the most important thing to know here, because I think a lot of players, myself included, probably don't like the sound of flipping over a random yeah. action placement slot and flipping over a random person. And but in play, between the resources you get and the flexibility provided from the idol, it's very rare that you would ever be in a situation that um, you couldn't get, you couldn't defeat the guardian just between what you're getting from that spot and what you uh, can trade at your idol in for. Uh, so I think that really does a huge service to making the game palatable to a wide range of players. It, poten- it potentially reduces the skill ceiling quite a bit because I can picture a game done just slightly differently where guardians were more punishing. As it is, they only give you a fear if you don't defeat them and leave your worker on that spot by the end of the round, which is minus one point and makes your deck less efficient. Like You don't want that, but it's not the end of the world. And I could see a more punishing version of this game where that punishment is worse. Yeah. Um, and... Or, or without like such a robust like benefits from the idols, where like it would really reward you like preparing ahead of time. And I think that's something that a lot of games do, uh, where this you can prepare. You know, it's probably better if you don't have to use your idol because that means you'll be able to use it 
more flexibly later in an even better spot, perhaps to like get up the research track to get, you know, the most points uh, at the end of the game. But like you can go, you can pretty reliably go to a new place, explore with no other resources and you don't feel too scared doing it. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's, that's really fair. And the opportunity cost of not defeating a guardian is high, but it's not going to sink your whole game. So sometimes you can take the risk and, and go somewhere where, Oh, only if this one flips. I think the final thing I'll say really quickly too, one thing that was really illuminating for me, Jake, was 11 of the 15 Guardians require an arrowhead to defeat. So it really focuses. Yeah, it really, I think in terms of costing and design, focuses the game. If you get certain assistance, it's going to make you more effective at this area of the game. And one of the ways that they do that is with the assistance that give you arrowheads for trading for things. That's interesting. That's a good tip. That's a strategy tip for you listening at home. Beat your friends at Arnak. Uh, get get a arrowhead before exploring. Yes. Okay. So that's we've explored. I, I feel like I see a dig site coming up. Unless we have to dig different you, plants. I yeah, feel yeah. like I feel like you gave me no choice here. It's time to dig. <laughs> So let's get the shovels out and talk about the worker placement system, Jake. The most distinguishing factor, the thing we have to get off the table at the outset, you only have two workers in the game. You're two archaeologists and you cannot get more. There's a couple ways in which you can use them multiple times or maybe activate a site like you would um, if you had an extra worker. But for the most part, worker placement game where you're limited to two workers. Yeah, it. I, I mean, I think that's interesting, and it really adds. I mean, right? There's, I think, there's two different kind of ways that you can make worker placement feel impactful, and that is through your opponent, like having a limited number of spots. Where every time your opponent goes somewhere, you're like, "Oh no!" Like there goes an opportunity for me, or limiting the number of workers you have, and then. That makes each choice of where to place one incredibly important just through the scarcity of that resource. And Arnak definitely leans very heavily into the latter category. There are definitely times when, you know, a space you want to go is taken, but like there's always good places to go. There's always good places to go, though sometimes there are spots where like you can really stick it to someone getting in there before before they are just depending on where they are in the research track. And the tier three slots are so good that I feel like once those start to get revealed, the incentive to go there is so high that I think planning around, okay, I'm likely going to be first next turn so I can reveal the first tier three spot knowing I'll probably be able to get into it before someone else. And I, I think it adds in terms of texture and planning a lot to the game. But you can also, I think because of the way the travel system works, so we've talked about the travel system a little bit throughout, um, but the travel system and the worker placement system are inexorably tied because you need travel icons to travel to spots. So I think that the worker placement system in terms of just blocking, that gets explored, but you also get to explore like, okay, I know Jake has built into a lot of boat icons. So if I'm going to reveal a tier three spot, I'll just pivot and go towards automobiles, knowing it will be more expensive for him in terms of the deck he's built to explore that really strong spot that I've paid to reveal and I want to use more than he can. 
I think what you're saying there reveals the levels of depth to this game that are not apparent on first play because that's definitely a level of play that i haven't been operating on as much you know i'm in in these early plays i think i am very much focused on like number one you know i'm doing what's best for this guy over here sure you know and and i think like that is a super viable and fun way to play the game too you know uh but certainly i think it's exciting that 30 plays in or whatever like there continue to be levels of emergent depth in this worker placement decision uh, that feel more interactive because that was kind of one of the cons I have of this game is that like, it doesn't feel that interactive to me. So much of the interaction is, um, is, is so indirect, which I think are the, the like very common criticisms like, of worker placement games. Yeah, right. It's in, I would say like you can tell there is interaction because like what you do does matter to somebody else. But I think I've used like the term before in other games that we've covered on this. Like the the interaction feels incidental. Like yes. I'm doing something that happens to annoy someone else, but I didn't do it be to annoy them. And it sounds like what you're saying is like as you play more, there are more opportunities revealing where you can do something to annoy someone even and and realize that you know by setting them back and getting that benefit would be even better than doing something a different action placement space that would be slightly better to you but would not impact their gameplay at all yeah definitely and i think that that's probably also a product of me playing a lot of two-player and the games that i've been playing just when i'm jamming games um it makes it easier to sort of have and focus on that sort of direct interaction because anything that's putting me forward and putting them back at the same time like you were saying jake sort of counts double and i think that comes really i think at the tier two spots the ones that cost three compasses that you can from round one players will start revealing these um I think that it's less common that you're going to get a really good block, except because of the dynamic nature of the worker placement spots. Sometimes in games, there's only going to be one spot out there and it, that lets you draw a card in tier two. So all of a sudden, if you, if you haven't gotten a lot of ways to draw cards elsewhere, if you can go to the spot that lets you draw a card and get an arrowhead and you also need an arrowhead, that's going to become a very attractive spot. Or maybe your draw is really bad and you just need to get into that spot to sort of smooth out your deck and, and fix your draw. So I, I do think that the dynamic nature of the worker placement game of the worker placement spaces leads to really interesting sort of emergent decisions within every different game where certain resources are more common. Certain resources are going to be less common though. It, it, it really varies by the end of the game. You generally, because the way Arnak is designed have access to whatever you need. It's just figuring out where the most efficient way for you to get those resources based on your deck, your assistant, etc., is. And that's part of the game is like knowing how to see your path. Totally. And that path is extremely important. If you want to get to the top of the, wait, I think I've just unearthed something. What, 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 what is this? Is this the we, entrance to a temple? I think uh, maybe we should research our discoveries. Let's do it. This is the such an important aspect of the game and it takes up roughly a third of the game board on board game arena i i think it takes up about the same on the physical table as well and i think that it plays 
as or equal to more importance than that. And this is really a research track that you're moving up throughout the game. And every time you reach a new level, you're getting a bonus from it. So no matter what you do in Arnak, you always get something. And I think that's what Jake was talking about earlier, where everything you do feels like you're fulfilling your plans and also planning for the future. Um, and this research track plays into that so much. There's also two different icons, your book, your magnifying glass and your book. And you're really, I think it, it makes you feel like you're like using them as a team to like leapfrog up this temple track a little bit in a way that to me is very fun, figuring out how to sequence it when it makes sense to let your magnifying glass get ahead because your magnifying glass always has to be ahead of your book. They can be on the same level, but your book can never go ahead of your magnifying glass. And your book gives you really important actions. Of course. Yeah. And of course that, that makes sense like in real life because you know you have to look at something before you can write it before down you in can your read journal it. what you yeah. found. Yes. When oh I told when I told my uh when I told Bridget my wife that rule in the game and she's a PhD archaeology student or archaeology PhD candidate or whatever. Uh she she was like she like loved that rule just like yes like you have to like carefully observe before you can write down your discoveries in the journal i just think it's such a it's like just another one of those like warm touches to this game like it does an important thing for like like mechanism wise but it's just a way that like this theme which is not you know you've mentioned before the most unique one in the world perhaps the most interesting one in the world but it just adds these warm touches like there's that like there's card that's just dog you know that's just like it just makes it feel nice you know the way this theme is portrayed is i think like honestly like the best possible outcome for a game like this like it just feel i guess i should say like it feels so sincere i think if they had gone a little more like serious and tried to make it like scary that like would have kind of fallen short and if they had just gone like more goofy too it would have made it feel maybe just like a little bit more unserious like a game not to take so seriously um but like i think the sincerity with which they treat the subject matter which is inherently a little silly is endearing it's also I feel like I having I don't know if I would have answered this question this way before playing Arnak, but I think I'd rather play a game with a theme I like slightly less, but have the theme executed almost perfectly, than play a game with a theme that I like more, but not executed quite as well. And Arnak is nothing if not a near perfect executed vision of what it set out to be. Right. Okay, so research we talk track. A little bit about the research track. <laughs> yeah. Do you I think Let's let's talk about like signposting a little bit here, and maybe we'll okay. talk about this more in another episode. But this is kind of a, an idea I had to ask you. I was like, because when we were talking about games on Discord or whatever, you keep like, I, yeah, like this is such good signposting. I'm like Brendan, what do is <laughs> I had to like after a while of, of just like nodding, like yeah, yeah, totally, dude. I had to like ask you, like stop, I was like Brendan, what do you mean when you say signposting in relation to games? And. I really appreciated you asking me what that meant and that I felt bad for using it just assuming because I think it's kind of a term that I picked up from uh, listening to Mark Rosewater talk about Magic the Gathering and the way that they design cards in that game. And then I've sort of applied it elsewhere. And the idea is that uh, signposts are elements of a game that tell players what they should be doing next. And the research track is signposted all the way up. It just tells you, do you want to move past this point? Pay this. So even if you can't plan... I think just even the... 
or just real quick, I think like just even the fact that it takes up like a third of the yes. board yep. is like, th- that is like the designer, like, waving a red flag like do not ignore this like it will not go well for you if you ignore this totally yeah it itself is a physical signpost because of its size yeah exactly yeah perfect and then also for players who can't you don't know what spots are available so you don't know what might be happening next if it's the first time that you've played the game so you need some indication of what to do next in arnak what your next goal should be your most immediate goal and the cost to move up these different rungs so the temple if you haven't played is essentially just a bunch of different rungs on a ladder and every time you want to move up a rung with either a magnifying glass or your book you have to pay the cost of that and there's different paths up and they'll they'll link back together so maybe you could take the left path and you'll pay, yeah yeah they fork yeah yeah so maybe if you take the left path you'll have to pay this resource and if you take the right path you'll pay this one and if you get to them first you also get a bonus a benefit that's going to be really important but in terms of what jake's saying of signposting i think that this is the research temple is the important glue that helps make the game approachable for anyone that plays because you always have a sense of like what you should be doing and you always know how you can try to plan for the future though it does become a point of interaction because if you see someone sort of going and they've committed to a point and you can tell that they only have the resources to pay for one spot if you can research that slot before them you're not going to block them from that slot but Arnak is all about marginal edge. And if you can get there before them, that can really magnify and be very powerful. Maybe they were counting on getting to that spot and getting the coin that they needed to buy this two cost card. And now they only have one coin. And they're like, oh, but my whole strategy, like I converted into this arrowhead and this tablet. So it, I think that there's a lot of interaction right. going on here also. Also, there's um, like award tiles strewn throughout yes. too. So if you're like the first person to get to a spot not every single spot is like this um, but it's almost like every other on the level uh, like up the track if you're the first to get to a spot you can get a special award on that which again is not a lot it could be just like a coin here or there or a a, a scrap or whatever a few different things um, but you know because it's such an incremental advantage like getting a coin that allows you to buy a card that you're then going to be able to draw next turn is huge 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 in the game um so that's cool and then the other thing i want to say about the research track is like i've been so impressed with how well it just makes like me think like everything is so well weighted and calculated because every time i get to the end of this game i either have like exactly enough resources to like get to the very top or i'm like one resource short you know like and it does this really clever thing too to like guarantee that where once you get to the top of the track, which you really want to achieve, I think. As with at like least a, your magnifying glass. Yeah, with at least your magnifying glass um, to do well. It seems like that like almost needs to be part of your strategy. And then how much you want to move up your book behind it. You know, that could be a viable. If you want to go like the research track strategy, that means like, you're moving your magnifying glass all the way up and like you're trying to get your book up high too. Whereas like other strategies would be like, I'm trying to explore and defeat guardians and I'm getting my magnifying glass to the top. Or I'm like trying to buy a bunch of artifacts and I'm getting my magnifying glass to the top because that's so many points. But once you have your magnifying glass to the top, there's an ability to like buy extra point scoring tiles, which is basically like converting resources for end game scoring. So even if like, 
you have you're flushed with resources and get to the top. Uh, you know, where a different game would, I think, a lesser game would be like, okay, now we're at the end game scoring, so like count up how many compasses you have. Like four compasses yeah. is worth one point, you know, or whatever. Like each of the the diamonds, or they're not diamonds. Like I guess rubies are like the the red gems, whatever. The jewel, the jewel, the jewel. That's like the most valuable resource in the game and like so it'd be like okay for each of those you have left over that's like one or two points or something here it's like there are tiles you can purchase as an action uh the most valuable one being i think like 11 points and that like requires like all the different resources throughout the game or you know you can get like a six point tile or something or a five point probably six probably six uh by like doing two thirds of them or you can do the one third to get just like a two point tile. So at the end of the game, even if you're flushed with resources, it still has that tension of like, oh my god, I'm like one point short of getting the eleven point one, you know, or I just got it exactly. And one of the games we played, I had just the it might be kind of hard to explain, but like the way it works is like there's like three two point tiles that each cost a certain thing. And I had enough to get the tile on the left side and the right side, but not the middle one. So like I could not claim one of the six point tiles because like I you have to like satisfy like the left and middle or the right and middle in order to like get that. And I was just like, no. <laughs> and then I lost my one point. <laughs> oh, this is another well, that's system. how tight it is, you know. It's always so tight. Totally. And it's another system like the Moonstaff system where it's just a, such a clever little twist on on this one little area of the game that really brings it together. And it feels so polished and so fantastic because of it. Um, I love too that you can, if you can get the 11 cost one and you have enough left over to get a six cost one or a two cost one, sure, go ahead, buy those two and get those. Um, the other thing really quickly that I'll say about the temple track is I think that the way in which we were both talking about the sort of benefits that you get for being to a spot first, getting there first, really drives the game forward and gives you that sense of momentum. But there's a different strategy in Arnak, which is just like conceding the tempo track and sort of saying, okay, you run up first. I'm going to go slow, but I'm going to get the the benefits of these different spots exactly when I need them. So I'm not going to like overspend on resources to to run. I'm going to walk and I'm going to get the benefits and the payoff at the most optimal time. There's one that will buy you, if you get your book there, it will buy you an artifact. That If you get that, when the best artifact timing in the game is up there for your strategy, that can be really effective. There's one that will defeat a guardian. I think that this can really feel like clockwork in a way. We talked to, I, now I'm using a, a mixed metaphor. It's another place where the stars will align for you in Arnak, and you can really force them to, to align. And it's as a player, so rewarding in terms of making the decision to go slow or to go fast. I, I don't know. I think the research track is done almost perfectly. It's so smart. Yeah. The stars aligning like clockwork, as we always say on the Decision <laughs> Space podcast. Uh, no, but I agree. And I think the last thing to mention about this is it also is how you unlock assistance. So yes. like getting your book up you know, the first two levels give you assistance. And that is also, I just, the reason I want to highlight that is like, that's also something that feels mandatory to do and early. And I mean, it's pretty, I think it's also like fairly well signposted that you need to do this, but I think that's a huge point of 
differentiating yourself. Like if you can get your assistance online and upgraded before somebody else, um, that's a big advantage to you because that's just you're just getting more actions and research and you know or more actions and resources in every given round. So I would say like the importance of the temple track even goes further than getting your magnifying glass all the way up. You want to get your magnifying glass all the way up, but you also want to get your assistance online and fully upgraded as early as possible. Yeah, even just on board game arena in terms of talking about signposting, Jake. Uh, the assistants are just tiles. So you, once you get to the assistant track, you can take the assistant tile that you want. There's three available. And then it shows you an action that you can do and they're double-sided. So you can upgrade them to be more effective. But even on Board Game Arena, on your little player board, which is the same one that's physical, I think, there's a an empty space for it. I think in a, right. in a less well-designed game, it, it would just have, uh, it wouldn't have like an outline of like literally where this goes. Because I think that empty space is just like Jake is saying. It's, it's a card off the side. Exactly. It's saying like, you need to fill this in, like fill it in because we all as humans, (laughs) we like seeing the completion and it just signposts enough to say like, no, this is a system you have to interact with. Yeah, I agree. And I think I, I mean, I don't know. Do you have turbulence? Is there a little bit of turbulence uh, potentially coming along here? I think this is a good time for it. Let's do it. The only only thing I really want to say is like, I think this is something that would grate on a lot of players, which is that like you have to get your magnifying glass to the top. Mm. You have to upgrade your uh, assistance and get them online early on in the game. And I think I think some players who maybe are, are players that like what they really like in game is like to explore and like discover like unique new strategies. And you have like they, like there is a lot of room to explore, I think. Um, outside of this but like this has to be part of your strategy strategy so i just think like you probably listening to this you probably know who you are but if that sounds like something that might annoy you uh of like certain things in the game being more or less mandatory to do well then i think it probably would annoy you in arnak yeah i i definitely don't think arnak is a game that is on rails but i think because the destination for the most part has to kind of be the same it it can be frustrating that you sort of end up walking the same path multiple times. And this game, you might focus on fighting guardians or, or that game. You might just really focus on explorate of not exploration. That would be fighting guardians or like really building out your deck or like getting a ton of resources and using the assistant that gives tablets to utilize those powerful resources multiple times. But more or less it's, it is a game where the destination's the same. And I, I think that might be my only point of turbulence too, Jake yeah. is, I think I think like the blockbuster movie, you know, it's great the first time. And the reason I first thought of that was because after playing the first time, I was like, that was so fun. I can kind of see this being samey. And the more mm. I played it, the more I've like unearthed and like think like, okay, wow, there are a lot of interesting decisions. There are like a lot of fun builds you could come up with for your deck. Um, but I think that like this is a game that probably for most people who are like serious and into the board game hobby is probably one that would be like you probably get like 10 great plays with your friends and then you might feel ready to move on and i don't think that is like a negative like i think any game that like you get 10 great plays out of is like what a great investment like if we got 10 great plays out of all the games that we buy like you know the board game hobby is you know, a great investment. 
So I, I don't think that's like a negative, but I do think like it might be a game that has a shorter lifespan than some of the other games I'm willing to give like an above eight rating mm. to. That's just a hunch though. I haven't played it as much as you. I think there's probably a valley in the middle that can be really frustrating for Arnak. And my one point of turbulence, I guess, in addition to that would just be that the feedback in the game isn't great. It can be really difficult to know what you did wrong to not have a good game of Arnak and what you should have done right. And I think that if there is a failure of the game systems, it's that the lessons that a bad game teaches you, it really makes you work for. Learning it, you have to be a really careful observer. And there's a lot of games that show you what you did wrong more effectively. So I think that in your sort of, this isn't going to work for some groups, for some players, they'll have a few games where they can't learn the lessons and they don't want to put in the work to learn them. And that's totally reasonable because there's so many good games to play. But I do think if you put in the work, it gets so fun. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really exciting. I mean, it's, it's one I haven't, I'm like I've said, I've, you know, I've only played it like four times. I'm playing more asynchronously right now. And it's like one I'm still like, every time I'm taking a turn, I'm like, this game is so fun. And like, yeah. that's what I keep coming back to. And like, maybe that won't fade. I've just like, that's just like kind of like a feeling perhaps unfairly because of like the, the, the accessibility of it that I'm, I'm like perceiving to be the case. And like, but really don't let that deter you because I think this is a game more than most that almost anyone who loves board games is going to have a great time playing, especially in those first few times you're racing up that temple track. Definitely. I think if you're a fan of, of, of games, play Arnak once. It's a, it's a movie that everyone deserves to at least see, see one time. Yeah. Um, with that, I think if you are a fan of board games, of decisions, of talking about games, Jake and I would love to talk more with you. Uh, I, we invite you to come to our, our Discord, our, our discussion space for talking about decisions. And I'd love to talk Arnak strategy. Uh, if you want to talk about different items, I would love to do that. Yeah, I think Brendan's items. He's like, which, which one do you guys take in this situation? And it's like, it's cool that like the game definitely is deserving of that kind of study, I think. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the Discord has just been like delightfully active. So if you're one of our Discord members listening to this, thank you because it's been really fun hanging out, playing games with y'all. Yeah. And playing games has been a, a huge activity there too. So if you're looking, also, finally, very quickly, we hit 3,000. Uh, downloads for decision space overall so far so um, i won't get too sappy too corny again at the end but thank you to everyone it's so awesome hearing the the reaction to this podcast so far and jake and i are so excited to continue the adventures so if not an arnak next week headed to the crucible to talk about keyforge and then on on to an even more exciting and expansive future thank you so much for listening bye all You are now exiting the decision space. Thanks for listening. Please take care and enjoy the rest of your game. Mm -hmm.